Good morning. You can keep your Bibles right where they are. Uh, 21, 1 through 11 will be our text for this morning. Uh, we have been looking at the work of Christ for several weeks, and that is the series that we're in. It's like an 11-part series. And so far, we have examined his incarnation, his childhood. Uh, and that's really interesting, right? We learned that he was actually actively pursuing earning our righteousness for us even as a child. Uh, his ministry began later, but really he was ministering on our behalf even as a child. So we looked at his incarnation, his childhood, his baptism, his temptation, and last Sunday we looked at the transfiguration where he was, you know, he um, went from being sort of in the appearance of a normal man to this glorified state, and we looked at that. This morning we will be looking at his triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry took place after the transfiguration at the beginning of what is known as Passion Week. It's what we call Passion Week. Passion Week represents the last week of, I would say, probably Jesus' earthly life. Like, not to imply that he doesn't, you know, live in a sense or any of that, but just as an incarnate man. It's like the last week of his life before he was actually crucified, before he was killed, or it was during that week. That's the Passion Week. Uh, began on what we call Palm Sunday. And I know this is really weird to be preaching about this today because it is not Palm Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday because every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. Uh, so, you know, normally we preach about the triumphal entry and these things around Easter, uh, but we're doing it today. But it began on Palm Sunday. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and ended on Resurrection Sunday, it's like one full week uh, when Jesus rose from the grave. So that's Passion Week. Now, obviously, between these two Sundays, right, these two bookends, Jesus did a whole lot. And uh, typically when you get to around Easter time, you know, you just kind of focus on his, you know, Good Friday and you focus on the, 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 he was in the tomb, you know, over the weekend and then Sunday you talk about resurrection. But we rarely ever talk about all this stuff he did during that week and he did so much during that week. It's, it's pretty incredible. In fact, uh, I think it's the Gospel of John. John literally devoted eight full chapters of his Gospel to describing what Jesus did during that week. So uh, nearly half of John's gospel has to do with, with laying out what happened during that week and week alone. Maybe you've never even thought about that. But literally, if you look at chapters 12 through 20, they're all about what Jesus did when he entered throughout the week and then to his resurrection. Pretty exciting. Now this morning, though, we're going to really just focus on the starting point of that week, the triumphal entry, and uh, hopefully we'll discover how it points to or illustrates the work of Christ. Now, I would say right off the bat, when I think of the triumphal entry, and I think many of us have probably examined it or read about it in Scripture, when we think of the triumphal entry, we don't typically think of his work. We're prone to going to the cross and to the resurrection and to all the healing and all the things that he did. But the triumphal entry actually really illustrates his work and even his ongoing work in a sense. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to preach this to you today. Uh, I think before we really get into it and shift gears here, I think it'd be befitting that we pray one more time just for the Holy Spirit to, to do his ministry during this time. So bow your heads with me. Father, we, we call upon you that you would send the Spirit in power, your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of, of the Holy Trinity, to open our hearts and minds to the truth, to not just open them in, in the sense that we hear, but open them in the sense that they would receive and that the word would become manifested in us and that it would begin to change us and chip away a little bit of us and make us a little bit more like Jesus Christ, that we would be sanctified a little bit more even on this Sabbath day today. And so we, we ask, Lord, that you'd send your spirit in power, that he would quench any of our fears right now, any of our ultimate concerns about what's going on outside of these doors, our life, the busyness, the chaos. Just, just, just quell that stuff for now, Lord, and Cause the Spirit to send the Spirit to cause us to focus and to humble ourselves and to listen to you who are, you are our good teacher, you are our leader, you are our pastor and preacher. And so may we submit ourselves to you, Spirit, come in power. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So 
Uh, I think it'd be befitting. We're going to do an exposition of this text. It's not going to be the deepest one in the world because I have a place that I want to get to here, but I, I still think we ought to work through this triumphal entry text uh, until we can get to the end, really, where we start to tie it together. But let's pick it up at 21, verse 1a. Okay, so that'd be Matthew, what? Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. We're looking at 1a. If you're there, say I'm there. 90% are there. That's all right. Uh, 1A, let's read it. And, and I'll be reading from a, a different version than you heard it read, so that's okay. We, we give the freedom here that you can read from anything but the Quran. Uh, 1A, uh, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to, and it's actually pronounced Beth Fage, like Fabergé, you've heard that? Beth Fage, and I, I just, I was calling it Beth Fage. Uh, when they came to Beth Fage, uh, to the Mount of Olives, comma. So just stop right there. He's speaking of of Jesus here, speaking of the disciples, speaking of a mixed multitude, all right? Now when they, this whole group, and Jesus and his disciples drew near to Jerusalem, they came to, uh, right on the outskirts of a village called Bethphage, uh, which was near the Mount of Olives. Now if you just go back a little bit, you look in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, that's an amazing text that says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and uh, what, what we see then again over in Matthew 16, 21, that tells us why he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, and it says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things uh, from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so what we're actually seeing in our text is that coming to pass and that coming true. Earlier, Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop me. Peter tried a couple of times. Not happening. Tried on the Mount of Transfiguration. Tried before they went to there. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be betrayed, to, to be sold out, to suffer, to die on a cross, to rise. He had set his mind on doing that. That's essentially the gospel, right? And what we're seeing in 1A is Jesus basically making good on that promise. We're seeing it right here. He's making good on his word. I'm, I'm headed there, man. I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem. He was literally headed there to accomplish uh, really the ultimate purpose for him coming, the uh, suffering and the death and the, and the rising. Now, Bethphage was a small village on the primary road between Jericho and Jerusalem, uh, which was obviously near the Mount of Olives, as we see in the text. And this, this place, Beth Vigée, this village, I don't even know what we would compare it to. It was very, very small, not a whole lot of people. Uh, it was roughly about a mile away from Jerusalem. So it was kind of a stop-off point to the holy city. And for whatever reason, I guess obviously because they had figs, it was known as the, uh, a place of young figs. In fact, that's what Beth Fage translates out to in the Aramaic. It means house of figs or house of young figs. So, and, and I was you know, thinking, well, maybe it was like a farming community, but I don't think so because uh, the Galilean region was the farming and agricultural. That was the central valley of Israel. This area right here is, is kind of the main city area. And so I don't know if it was a farming community, but it was known for its figs apparently. And so you can kind of envision in your mind, they're approaching Jerusalem, which is in the distance, and you can definitely see it, and they're coming up on this small village. They're about to enter this village, and so that's what's taking place. And you've got the Mount of Olives, which really looks like a small foothill. You've got that right there as well. They're approaching, they're coming, and they're stopping off right there. Now, question is, why did they stop off right outside of Beth Fage? And then you, obviously, you look at 1B through 3. Uh, it says, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, so they stop and he says this, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So speaking of Beth Fage, Jesus commanded two of his disciples to go into that village to retrieve and bring back to him a donkey and her young colt. And, and obviously it says they would find the animals tied maybe to a hitching post. I don't know if they used those then. I'm thinking Clint Eastwood movies here, spaghetti westerns. Obviously these animals were secured somehow to something right near the entrance of the village. And, and I'm thinking at this point, these two disciples that were singled out and sent were wondering, what in the heck is he up to? 
why would we be going into this village to get these animals? Why does he want us to do this? Now, Jesus also told them that if anyone questions you about why you're taking the animals, because obviously this would look like, you know, vehicular theft. This would look like what Modesto's famous for, your car getting stolen. So, you know, he says, man, if anyone tries to stop you or hinders you or tells you what are you doing, he says he gives them instructions to give to the owners or to the onlookers. The Lord needs them. And then he says they will release them to you immediately. They'll give you the animals. Now, what's interesting is that some commentators say that this was some sort of a supernatural encounter or event where Jesus used his divine powers to look ahead and, and to see the animals and to somehow persuade the owners to release the animals. And, and I think that's a real, real stretch here. I don't think that's how it played out at all, although Jesus could certainly have done that. I don't think that's what happened. I, I suspect that Jesus had previously worked out an agreement uh, with the animals' owners. And I think the key uh, to that right answer there is in the phrase, the Lord needs them. He instructed the disciples to tell the people that owned the animals the Lord needs them, and that would be why they would release the animals. And, and I, I would tell you this, since he said the Lord needs them, that would, it would appear that the owners of the animals probably recognized Jesus as Lord. He, he didn't say, tell them that Jesus needs them. He said, tell them the Lord needs them. And so we've got a lordship thing going here. So I think what's happening here is that you have the animal owners, they're disciples. They believe in Jesus as Lord. And so somehow they had something worked out with their Messiah, their Savior, and, and you know they give the key phrase, the Lord needs him, and boom, they'd release him. So I think that's how it played out. I think the key's in that little phrase right there. Now, another question arises, why uh, did Jesus send for a donkey and her colt, right? I mean, that's obvious. Why, why do you need these animals? That might have been what the disciples were thinking. What did he need them for? Obviously, we look at verses 4 through 5, and this is interesting. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. Jesus essentially needed the donkey and colt in order to fulfill prophecy. This is what he was after here. He needed these animals so that he could fulfill prophecy. And what we see here is that Matthew cited Zechariah 9.9, which basically says that Israel's promised Messiah would mount, would ride a donkey colt, ride it right into Jerusalem. This was a prophecy, a messianic prophecy about what Israel's true Messiah would do. He would ride a donkey's colt into town. Um, it is also tied, not just to Zechariah 9.9, uh, 9, it is also tied to the prophecy in Isaiah 62.11, which says, say to the daughter of Zion, see the same verbiage there? Behold, your salvation comes. Like thinking of seeing Jesus riding up on this donkey. Behold, there's your salvation, it comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So essentially Jesus called for the donkey and colt so that he could fulfill these prophecies. And, and you must know at this point, we have to just acknowledge this, that part of the work of Christ was to fulfill prophecy. So there's our first little insight into the triumphal entry, how it points to the work of Christ. Now, there are a lot of different speculations on how many prophecies, that Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I think it's um, uh, Albert Edersheim that says somewhere around 460. Uh, but the, I don't know, maybe the common guesstimate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 to 353. So... Jesus, literally, part of his work was to come and to fulfill all, you know, all of the prophecies that had to do with Messiah. Not all of the way out in the future ones, but most of the ones about his coming and, and his character and how he would be and what he would actually do. And, and I, I was trying to look up the statistical odds of anyone, anyone, fulfilling all of the prophecies that he did. And it, it was literally like a one followed by like 190 zeros. Okay, that, that's a huge number. I mean, my son and I were trying to look up the numbers. We were at the Quintacala 
flog-a-dog. You know, I mean, it, I have no idea. I know a billion. I know a trillion. I, I don't know if a zillion's a real one, right? I use that one all the time. But million, we're, we're familiar with it. This number is crazy. And so, but he came to fulfill prophecy, and, and he fulfilled over 350 of them. Now, I think it's also significant that, that Jesus asked for a cult. You know, not just in terms of fulfilling prophecy, but a cult in and of itself. Uh, a cult is a young donkey, right? So we have this mother donkey and we have this younger donkey. Now, I think what's interesting about cult is that what that means here isn't just that the animal was young. What it means, really, is that the animal had not yet been ridden. The animal had not yet been ridden, okay? The animal also may have been, the reason why it hadn't been ridden yet was because, very likely, that it had been set apart for holy use, okay? Now, now back in these days, royalty chose unridden animals, so they would be the first to ride them. So if somebody offered a, you know, an animal to a king or to some royal person, um, they would have to offer one that had yet to be used, one that had yet to be ridden, because it was a high honor to give to a king an animal that had not yet been ridden yet for that king to ride that animal for the very first time. You could say as the previous owner, man, my animal had never been ridden, and, and look at King David ride that puppy. I mean, that's pretty cool. Obviously, much more significant with Jesus here. A king would not accept an animal that had already been ridden or used. Now, if your family was chosen to provide such an animal, just picked out of the masses, to provide such an animal, an unridden cult or something of this nature for royalty, this was a massive honor in that day. Your family got singled out for that. We want you to provide a colt. I know you're going to have some, you know, some baby donkeys at your house or whatever. We want one of those for the king. Make sure that you know, it gets raised up right and reared and all that. And, and don't let anyone ride it. And let's set it apart for the king's use. Man, if you got picked to do that, 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 was, that was a massive, massive honor. And I think that too is what we see playing out in this text. Now let's just break down this prophecy a little bit. Let's take a look at it. Uh, first thing we see is that it says, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. So the first thing that we see here is that scripture teaches that Messiah is more than Messiah, or Messiah is more than Savior, or Savior is more than Savior. He is also king, right? When we think of Jesus, we think of Messiah, we think of Savior. Does king the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe not necessarily, but what we see here right in our own text in this fulfilled prophecy is that the Messiah is also a king. And now you just think about what a king does. What did a king back then do? Well, they rule. They rule over people, obviously. They rule over kingdoms. Okay, so this is what a king does. A king is sort of this high official, if you will. He's royalty. And the scripture, obviously, we've read it before or heard it at least, that scripture refers to Christ as the king of kings. This means that Jesus is the greatest of all kings and that he rules over his kingdom. And uh, paralleled with that, scripture also calls Christ the Lord of lords. And when we think of king of kings and Lord of lords, uh, what we might want to do is think in terms of the expansion of his jurisdiction. Because a king ruled over a certain kingdom or a certain territory, but a lord ruled over a larger territory in royal terms or in political terms then. And so when you're the king of kings, you're like the baddest king of them all. When you're the lord of lords, your jurisdiction is endless. You're over all of it. You don't have a limitation on your kingdom. It's the universe, so to speak. It's the heavens and the earth. As a king rules over his kingdom... Um, as a king rules over his kingdom, Jesus Christ rules over his kingdom, which is ultimately the heavens and the earth. Now, look at what this, uh, I would say, Christ the king or Messiah king will be characterized right there in this prophecy. Right now, you should be thinking, maybe before we even talk about this, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he entered into it as a king. That's what the prophecy says. Now look at what characterizes this messianic king here in this prophecy. What does it say? It says humble. Humble. Meaning he will be characterized by humility. He will be characterized by humility. How would people 
know that this messianic king, if he rides in, how would they know that he is humble? I'll tell you why. It's right in the prophecy, by his, the way that he entered into the city. By the way that he entered into the city, he would do what? He would ride in on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This shows that King Jesus, that, that Christ the King, came in a gentle and humble manner. Not as a warrior, on a war horse. Okay, Riding in on a donkey was much different from what the Roman leadership would have done. They would have rode in on stallions. They would have rode in uh, in, in, you know chariots of fire or gold or something of this nature. It would have been uh, uh, really a sight to see when you looked at those Roman processionals and things like that. It was unbelievable what they did and many of the other kings in the territory would do that. They would ride stallions if they ever rode a horse themselves or they would ride in chariots which were basically like the limousines of that day. But that's not at all how Christ the king enters into the city, is it? No, see he, he didn't come as this proud, puffed up, you know, chested sort of king, he came in as a humble, as a meek, as a mild, as a gentle king riding on a donkey. Now you would think that, okay, so um, my choice, stallion, donkey, obviously I'd go stallion, but since I'm not much of a rider, I'd probably go chihuahua. Um, I don't ride horses or any of that, I'm scared of them, but not really. Uh, But just think about that for a moment. I mean, a king on a donkey... Well, you know what's interesting about this day is that was the mode of transportation for Israel's kings. They were known for riding on donkeys. And I think that it was a gesture of humility in these things. Uh, I don't know. But that is typically what they did. That was kind of Israel's thing. So he's, he's coming to them and he's riding and he's coming in and he's characterized by humility because of his mode of transportation. And then obviously if you examine the ministry, the life and ministry of Christ, you see humility, don't you? That's what you see. Now we must be warned here though, we don't want to make the mistake of, of, of thinking of Jesus in this humble donkey riding category alone. Because when King Jesus, when Christ the King returns, he will not be characterized by humility. Nor will he be riding in on a donkey's colt. That's not how he'll return. Now his, his first coming, characterized by those things, his second coming is vastly different. He will be riding a white horse. His eyes shall be like a flame of fire and his, on his head are many diadems and, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the very word of God and, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. We looked at that text last week. White and pure will be following him on white horses. Who are these, who are these armies of heaven? They are angels and saints. It's a saint army mixed in with angels. They will be riding with him on white horses as well. And from his mouth shall come forth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Boy, that doesn't sound like humility. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written... King of kings and Lord of lords. Right, I just read to you Revelation 19, 11 through 16. What am I telling you? First coming, humility, riding on a donkey. Second coming, in total and absolute glory, in total and absolute strength, in total and absolute wrath, with weaponry and a military to conquer, to subdue the world, to put God's enemies as a footstool for him to rule and reign over. Quite a contrast. Now look at verses 6 through 7. And I'm certainly glad that Christ came the way that he did the first time. Because if he had come back like he does the second time, none of us would have had a chance. It'd just be done. It'd be over. I'm grateful. 6 and 7. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. All right, so they obeyed. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Speaking of Jesus. Again, 
The donkeys fetched both animals, and when they returned, they removed their outer garments and placed them on the back of the colt. What were they doing? They were forming a kind of saddle for Christ so that he would be comfortable as he rode. And what happened? Jesus climbed aboard after they kind of fashioned this saddle, and, and, uh, and, and it has deeper implications than just being a saddle. But after they clothed the animal, the top of it, he got on and they rode. Now look at what happened as they rode toward Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. And it says this, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Matthew tells us that, that Jesus and the disciples were accompanied by a crowd. Where did these people come from? I mean, look at it right there. Most of the crowd. So the majority of the people did something here. We're, we're talking about a crowd here. Where did they come from? Were they villagers from Beth Fijay? No. There might have been a few people from Beth Fijay that were a part of this mixed multitude, but Beth Fijay did not even have enough population to do this. It is unlikely that they were just people from Beth Fijay. Uh, the fact is, many of these people joined Jesus right after he raised Lazarus from the dead, which took place just a handful of days earlier. That miracle gained an enormous amount of notoriety. It just news of him raising a person that had been buried for like four days. Talk about, it says in the King James, he stinketh. After four days, you stinketh. Some stinketh without being dead. He stinketh. This is the miracle of miracles in terms of what Jesus did during his ministry, aside from his own resurrection and these things. This miracle gained an enormous amount of attention. The news of it spread throughout the land, so much so that people descended upon Bethany where it took place like locusts to see Jesus and to confirm that Lazarus had been raised. Well, there's Lazarus. He's standing right there having a cup of Folgers. What the heck is going on here? They were tripping and they were gathering. Now, there were also pilgrims in this crowd, right? There were Passover pilgrims there because the Passover feast was about to begin. So you had a bunch of people that came to check out Lazarus and Jesus. You had a little bit of people from Beth Vigay likely and any of the other towns they gathered on the way through. And you had all these Passover pilgrims. Now, you must think about this for a moment. I'm not going to tell you how many people were in this crowd. I don't know. But hundreds of thousands of people descended upon Jerusalem during Passover. In the millions, very likely. So there were a lot of people here. That's the crowd. Matthew also tells us that the majority of these people basically broke into two groups who were doing two different things. Okay, and we're talking about the majority of them. One group was what? Spreading their cloaks on the road. What were they doing? Well, this was an ancient custom for citizens to throw their outer garments on the road for their monarch to, to ride over, symbolizing their respect for him and their submission to his authority. You know, by them taking off their cloaks and laying them down so Jesus could ride over them, they were essentially saying this to him, we place ourselves at your feet better than, better than that. You can actually just run right over us if you want to. We submit to you to the point of walk over us. That's fine. We are totally and absolutely your servants. So they're taking these things off and putting them down, and that's what that symbolizes. We're submitting to you. The other group, right, there was another group. Uh, they were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Uh, from John 12, 13, that gospel account, we learned that the branches were from palm trees. It's kind of where we get the, the title Palm Sunday. Palm branches symbolized salvation and joy. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it says that the saints will be around the throne of God, clothed in white. We're always clothed in white in heaven. I love that. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, exclamation point. So we kind of see a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the future right here with these palm branches being laid down. In 2 Kings 9.13, we read about a king named Jehu. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's J-E-H-U. So maybe Yehu, probably in Hebrew, it almost sounds like a Yahoo. He wasn't a Yahoo. Yehu, 
and how the Israelites did this very thing when he was anointed as king. They spread their cloaks and, and they spread palm branches before him right as he had been appointed to the throne of Israel. Have you ever heard of this king? Have you ever read about him in that passage? He was, he was a savage. Not in bad terms, but in terms of a military commander. This guy was bad to the bone. He was a valiant soldier. He was the commander of the military. And he was commissioned by God to utterly and absolutely destroy the house of Ahab. Have you heard of Ahab? Ahab is one of Israel's all-time most horrible, ungodly, unrighteous kings they'd ever had. He was just an absolute wicked, wicked king. And, you know, and, and, and he, this guy had been appointed to undo what Ahab had done to the kingdom. And to destroy that entire household, to destroy that every person of his family and to eliminate them as if to, to blot them out as if they never existed. God was so ashamed of this leader. Now, Jehu or Yehu, he put to death one of the most infamous women of all time in the Old Testament, Jezebel. You heard that name? Jezebel. So that's him. And a very similar thing happened to him a long time prior to this with the palm branches, with the cloaks being laid down. He was anointed king. They did this with him just as they were doing with Jesus. It was very similar to what was playing out in our text. And I'll tell you this, the crowds outside of Jerusalem that had sort of engulfed Jesus, they were hoping that King Jesus had come to do the same thing to Rome that Jehu had done to the house of Ahab. They were hoping, man, if this is the guy, we're going to submit ourselves to him. We're going to honor him with this ceremony as he enters this city. We're going to welcome him. We're going we're to become his fighting force. They were thinking, man, he's going to take, take out Rome. He's going to be like Jehu. He's going to be like others who have come before him and tried to do these same things. Now look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We just sang that. It's a great song. Now this crowd was so large that you had people laying down cloaks. You had people laying down palm branches. And you had people in the front and people who were in the back, right? They were bringing up the rear. You had the front, you had the back. And they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this little passage right here, this little verse is, is taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. They were reciting this psalm to King Jesus. That's what they were proclaiming to him. Uh, the word Hosanna is a Hebrew expression which means... Save us now. When you holler that, you're saying, save me now. That's what Hosanna means in, in the Hebrew. Save us now. That's what they were exclaiming. That's what they were proclaiming. They were shouting, save us now, son of David. And this is interesting. It means that the crowd understood that Christ, that Jesus, or that Messiah would come from the line of David as well. That's something else we learn here, right? Because they recognized that Jesus had done so. That's why they were calling him the son of David. That's what I like about the Israelites even back here. They missed some things, that's for sure, but they certainly understood their prophetic history in a sense that, man, our messianic king will come through the line, through the loins, through the family, through the hierarchy of King David, that that Messiah would come. And they're recognizing that here, and that's why they're saying... Save us, son of David. We recognize that you are our Messiah. Called him son of David. So at this point, they believed that Christ was their Messiah, that he'd come through David's line. The fact is, they were not interested in Jesus saving their souls. Not at all. They wanted him to save their nation from Rome. And later in that week, when they realized that, that was not why he had come at this point, they turned against him and shouted for his execution. You know, on Sunday, on this Sunday, the triumphal entry, they, they yelled, save us now. But on Friday, they said, crucify him now. They said, give us a, a complete and absolute criminal dirtbag, Barabbas, not to be confused with Barnabas. 
heard many sermons preached about Barnabas, and people are saying he was a terrible guy. Oh, we're talking about Barabbas. He was a zealot. He was a, an assassin. Now, this week is just, I, I, you talk about a turnaround in one week. You go at the beginning of the week on Sunday, and you've got save us now, son of David. On come Friday, you've got kill this guy. Now, crucify him. What a change. Many of these same people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That little saying there was a greeting the priests used to welcome worshipers as they entered the temple. Anyone who came in the name of the Lord was thought to be blessed. They believed that Jesus had come in the name of the Lord their God. And that is why they pronounced this particular blessing over him. That's why they were shouting that we know that you have come from the Lord our God to save us and to rescue us. And that's why we recite this over you. Blessed is he. Blessed are you, son of David, for coming in the name of the Lord, is what they were essentially saying. Look at verses 10 through 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, I love this, look at that detail. The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This might be the first time that the word Nazareth is used in a positive way. Whenever somebody said, that's that carpenter from Nazareth, it was a derogatory thing. Here it might have been used positively. That's, that's Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. There was such an anticipation here and an excitement about this person. I mean, when Jesus entered the holy city, when he entered Jerusalem, this giant crowd that was with him created total bedlam. It was chaos. The residents of Jerusalem, the shop owners, you know, the Passover pilgrims who were all there were watching this, you know, this uh, procession enter into the city and just saying, what in the heck is going on here? This is insane. They began to say, who is this? Who's the guy riding the donkey? The crowds that were with Jesus began to answer saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is really interesting as well. Lots of little nuancey detail and stuff here. A few moments earlier, they were hailing him as the messianic son of David. And now they were calling him a prophet. He's the prophet from Nazareth. He's the prophet from Nazareth. You might remember what the typical attitude of Nazareth was. It was represented by one of the Lord's disciples, and he had said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So did they have a change of heart all of a sudden? They're hailing him, save us now, son of David. And then all of a sudden, well, he's that prophet from Nazareth. Did they switch? No. They believed he was both. At this point, the crowd believed that he was both, that he was the son of David and that he was this tremendous prophet who had come through this little town. Now it is time to transition. We've just looked at that whole text. That's the fastest exposition I've ever done of 11 verses. That doesn't mean there's more of that coming in the future. Let's transition a little bit. I want to talk to you about something really, really amazing. And here's the, here's the parallels with his work. Just, just as, a, as, a, as an opening line here, the purpose of this series has been to examine the work of Christ, right? That's what we've been trying to do here for five or six weeks so far. And so far in this message, or in this text, better yet, not my message, but in this text, we have seen that the fulfillment of prophecy was part of his work. Right? We've seen that. That's been highlighted there, with he, how he fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. That was part of Christ's work. He came to fulfill prophecy. What other examples of his work can we pull from this amazing text? Now, I want you to do a couple of things for me here. I want you to go back to verse 5. Go back and look at verse 5, and I want you to underline the word king. Okay? Underline that word king or write it down on your notes. And here's the second thing I want you to do right now. I want you to fast forward off of verse 5 and go right to verse 11. We just looked at it, and I want you to underline the word prophet. The word prophet. Highlight that. Write that down. All right, here we go. In Reformed theology, there is a Latin phrase which is used to describe something of tremendous importance. 
Okay? It is munis. Can you say it? Munis. M-U-N-U-S. Munis triplex. Munis triplex is the Latin phrase. The munis triplex. The munis triplex has to do with the threefold office of Christ. The threefold office of Christ. Yes, Christ held three offices. That's the way you want to think of this. And I love the way John Calvin put it. He calls it the threefold cure of Christ. Because in Christ's three offices, he cures us completely. Munis triplex. Now our passage, this triumphal entry here, this particular text, identifies two of Christ's offices. I just had you underline them. What are they? King and prophet. Okay? That's part of the munis triplex. We find the other office in passages like Psalm 110 verse 4. And in Hebrews chapter 7, which describe the office of priest. Okay? Priest. The munis triplex orders them like this. Christ is prophet. And I would say with a capital P, Christ is priest, capital P. And Christ is king, capital K. There's your munis triplex. Now, during his incarnation... Christ fulfilled these offices because the scriptures show that Christ, that the Messiah, would do so. You see, the Old Testament scripture prophesies the munis triplex, that the true Messiah of Israel, the true Messiah, Savior of the world, would actually hold these three offices and fulfill these offices in his work during his incarnation, during his life and ministry. But what is interesting about the munis triplex is that these offices are ongoing. They are not finished works like the other things that he did. Like what? Earning our righteousness. Imputing his righteousness to us and taking our sin. Making the atonement. Those are finished works. They're complete. And yet, the munis triplex, the offices of Christ, are eternal they are eternal offices and eternal works in a sense. They don't have a completion time. They continue on off into eternity forward. So they're unlike his finished works in that they continue. These offices go on and on and on. I like to put it like this. Christ is forever our prophet. Christ is forever our priest, and Christ is forever our king. Now I want to look at each of these offices for a moment. Christ, our prophet. What is a prophet? I can give you the most generic definition that I can think of. A prophet is one who is sent from God, and I would think, I would say, maybe we should couch that and put it into Jewish categories. In Jewish categories, a Hebrew categories, if you will, Old Testament categories, a prophet is one who is sent from God to deliver and proclaim God's word. That is a prophet. A prophet is a spokesperson for God. Okay? And in some ways, angels are messengers as well in these things, but prophets typically came and proclaimed God's word to whoever was supposed to hear it. Now, Jesus did this uh, during his ministry, during his incarnation. He uh, proclaimed God's word. He was a spokesperson for God in a sense, but it was really way different from that of all the other prophets that had ever come. Jesus did not speak on God's behalf. Jesus spoke as God. It's not like the Father filled Jesus with words and sent him to earth. When Jesus spoke, he may have been prophesying in a sense, but he was speaking as God. Big difference. The word of God does not, it does not generate inside of the prophet. It is imparted to the prophet and then spoken by the prophet. In Jesus' case, as prophet, the word of God came right from him. 
When he spoke, the very word of God came from him. He wasn't relaying a message. He was not sent as a prophet to deliver God's word. He came as God, and this is what I love about the incarnation, he came as God to speak directly to humanity. I have sent my prophets for, oh man, I don't know how many centuries here, and I am sending the ultimate, I am sending my Christ, I am sending God to come and speak directly to the people. Not just as a prophet, but as me himself. Huge difference. And another thing is, when Jesus preached, he pointed to himself as the fulfillment of all prophecy and as the fulfillment of the law. Examine the red letters in your Bible to see for yourself. And I would say this, and you might say, well, I don't know about that. I'll say this and I'll say it boldly. Jesus did not come to point to future events. That's what prophets came to do. He came to point to himself as the culmination and fulfillment of all of the things that have been proclaimed about him to come. And you'll say, well, he did point to some future events. Yes, he did. But when he did mention future events, they had to do with him. You'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with fire and glory. He speaks of himself. He is a prophet, but he is vastly different from any other prophet because the Word of God originates with him because he is the living Word of God. And that when he came, he wasn't pointing to some future events all the time like all the other prophets. Well, this will happen and this will happen. He's saying it's happening right now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're looking and hearing from its Messiah. That's what Jesus did. Therefore, Jesus is the greatest prophet because, not because he spoke as God's messenger, but because he spoke as God himself with all of the authority. Jesus didn't even have imparted authority. He wasn't given authority to proclaim God's word. He carried it with him because he is God. Now, in a sense, in his fulfilled ministry, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That is absolutely true. But when he spoke, what did people usually say when they listened to him speak? Man, this dude speaks as one with authority. Because he has authority. Jesus is the greatest prophet. Not because he spoke as God's messenger, but because he spoke as God himself. And Jesus is the greatest prophet because all other prophets pointed to him. And this is exactly what we've seen just last week with Elijah's presence during the transfiguration. He is the second greatest prophet to ever live next to Christ. And he's on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses, who is probably the greatest leader next to Jesus to ever live. You've got the greatest leader, and you have the greatest prophet together affirming Jesus, saying, you are the Christ. Go into Jerusalem and finish your work. You are the greatest prophet. You are the fulfillment of the law, Moses tells him. Great question comes up. How does Christ, our prophet, work for us today? He speaks his word to us, doesn't he? That is the full and absolute essence of a prophet. They speak the word of God. And Christ speaks his word to us. He is speaking his word to you now, right through this goofball. I don't get it. I scratch my head and say, I have no idea why. You have chosen to use weak, broken, shattered, dumb vessels like me. Fine with me. That's your strategy. And boy, does he accomplish his will, doesn't he? When I preach from the scripture, you're not hearing me. At least I hope you're not. Once in a while, I show up and everyone goes, oh, no, especially my wife. When I preach, you should be hearing from Christ. Why? Because he is the preacher. He is the prophet. And his Word, when he speaks his word to us, when it is applied by the Holy Spirit, it brings, because it has power and authority, it brings conviction, and it brings transformation, and it brings life, and it brings peace, and it brings joy, and it brings hope. He is the prophet. You see how the Munis triplex is ongoing as prophet? He continues to hold this office of prophet and speak to us week in and week out, and he doesn't do it just here on Sundays. I certainly hope not for you. 
This is how he utilizes this office, uses this office to care for us today. He speaks his word to us. He is our prophet. Christ, our priest. Christ, our priest. What is a priest? A lot of mixed understanding on that one, especially today, but in Jewish categories, a priest is one who ministers to God's people. During Jesus' day, the priests, the Jewish priests, the Israelite priests, they ministered to God's people in two primary ways. They, were, they did a lot of stuff, but they did two things in particular that were primary above all others. First, they prayed for the people. That was one of their first responsibilities, was to pray for the people, to intercede for the people. Secondly, what did they do? They offered sacrifices for the people. They offered sacrifices for the people. Now, if you examine the ministry of Christ in the Gospels, you will see him exercising his priestly duties by praying for others. Now, if you just look at the ministry of Christ at all, you'll notice that he spent a whole lot of time in prayer. And one of the things that I've never really factored in or considered is how often he prayed for other people. Because if you are, if the scripture, okay, God, if he's priest, then how did he execute his duty as priest and fulfill that by praying for others? Are there examples in scripture where we see him praying for others? They're all over the gospels. Jesus prayed for Martha. John 11, 41 through 42. You remember Martha, the busy one, the sister of Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. And Martha was like, I've got to get the casserole out of the oven. What are you doing, Mary, you sandbagger? You know, Martha was the one that came to Jesus right before he raised Lazarus from the dead and said, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. I don't think it's going to happen. And then the Lord literally prays for Martha and everyone around them, take this miracle and give them faith by it. That's what we see playing out in John eleven forty one through 42. Jesus prayed for little children, Matthew 19, 13 through 15. He prayed for ankle biters, munchkins. Jesus prayed for all believers, John 17. Remember that high priestly prayer? It's called the high priestly prayer. That's the title. He prayed for all believers, including his own disciples right there, John 17, 20 through 23. Another example would be Jesus prayed for Simon, a.k.a. Peter. Luke twenty two thirty one through 32. The devil has asked to sift you. And I have prayed that when you return, you will take care of my brethren. Jesus prayed a lot during his ministry. And if you go back and look, this is four examples. There's many more. He prayed for other people, thus fulfilling his duty, his office as priest, because priests were required to pray for the people that were entrusted to their care. But prayer wasn't the only duty of a priest. They also offered sacrifices. And if you examine Basically, the end of each gospel, you will, see the, you will see Christ do this as well, will you not? But the sacrifice that he offered was far more significant than that of any of the other old priests. Jesus didn't sacrifice an unblemished lamb for us like they would have. This would have only been a temporary remedy as it was. No, no, no. He offered himself as the very Lamb of God. He sacrificed Himself. He laid down His life. He died on the cross. And His sacrifice is forever. It's not temporary. It's a complete and absolute atonement. It's done. It is finished, He said. It covers us for all eternity. And what does His priestly duties in terms of praying for us and, and in terms of offering the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all complete and finished thing. It makes him the greatest priest of all time. Not just because of those things, which are highly significant and important, but because he belongs to a higher order of priests. Jesus was not a Levite, nor was he from the line of Aaron. He was not an, an Arianic priest. He was from Judah. 
He is the what? Lion of Judah. And he is a priest in the order of who? Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? The king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. The one in whom Abraham tithed to. The order of Melchizedek is a higher order than that of Aaron. It's a higher priestly order than that of Aaron. The order of Melchizedek was established long before Aaron was ever even born. The order of Melchizedek is is an eternal order. As it is written in Psalm 110 verse 4 in Hebrews 7.17, speaking of Christ, it says, You are a priest for what? Ever after the order of Melchizedek. The order of Aaron is not an eternal priestly order. It is concluded. Jesus concluded it. But he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I would say the the second greatest priest of all time, next to Christ. That's a mysterious person, Melchizedek. Try to figure out something on him. Good luck. Some try to say that that's a, a Christophany. I don't know if that's true, meaning that that's a, an, a, an earlier appearance of Christ. Maybe, but I don't see how he could be, I don't know. I think he was a legitimate person, king of Salem, who came and lived, and he was a righteous man, and he was a priest of God before the Arianic priesthood was established. And It's pretty amazing. He is the greatest priest of all time. He is in the order of Melchizedek, and he offered the once and for all final complete sacrifice, one that, that no earthly priest had ever done, ever could do. If any earthly priest had offered himself, it would have been a sinner dying for other sinners, which means we would be lost. How does Christ, our priest, work for us today? Think about it. He prays for us. (laughs) That's right. He prays for us. Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for us. Wow. He also advocates for us. 2 John 2.1, one who advocates is one who helps. Christ as our priest helps us. The Holy Spirit is is usually or generally referred to as our advocate or helper, but in this particular verse in 2 John 2, 1, John applied the title to Christ, who is both our righteousness and our propitiation, which means means of divine forgiveness. As our priest, he also defends us against our accuser, right? The devil, Revelation 12, verse 10 The devil approaches God's throne day and night with all sorts of allegations. Well, Phil did this, and and, and Phil did that, and I'm here to tell you, God, that Job only loves you because you give him stuff. And yet Christ, as our priest, shuts him down every time. That is how Christ, our priest, works for us today. He prays for us. He advocates for us. He defends us against the accuser. Christ, our king. The last one. What is a king? Again, in Jewish categories, a king is one who has been appointed to rule over God's people. A king did not have supreme authority. Rather, he was called to mediate the righteous rule of God to the people and was accountable to God for how he carried out his office. His primary duties, to protect the people of his kingdom from all enemies, foreign and domestic. His duty was to uphold and enforce the laws of his kingdom and bear the sword of justice if necessary. His, his responsibility, his duty was to prosper his people by making sure that commerce and trade were performed in accordance with righteous standards, in accordance with God's standards. Kings even listened to the disputes of, of, of his own people and his kingdom and even settled grievances. Think of King Solomon who judged between the two female roommates who fought over a child. You remember that story? Well, let's just cut the kid in half and we'll give you half. Each one of you can have half. Never mind, I'm the real mother. You remember that? That's in 1 Kings 3, 16 through 28. These are the things that, that 
kings did then, protection and, and ruling over, but not as ultimate authority as a subordinate authority to God and, and protecting and helping with trade and prospering the people. The triumphal entry shows that what one of these offices that Christ held, the office of king, but his kingship is far greater than that of any other king. A couple of reasons why, or three may be quick. Christ alone fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies of the coming king who would restore the house of David and usher in the kingdom of God. He's the only king in history to ever do such a thing. Christ alone has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Israel's other kings had been given some level of authority, but not like this. None of them ruled over a kingdom of this magnitude inside size. Plus, they all had to report to God. Christ reports to no one, for he is God. Christ alone reigns forever and ever. There is no succession, no need for an heir. His kingdom will never be passed down to someone else because his throne and reign are eternal. He is the greatest king. How does Christ our king work for us today? He protects us. And this protection began when he removed us from the clutches of Satan and from his kingdom, the world, and placed us under his rule and his kingdom. That's where his protection began when you first believed. And as members of his kingdom, he rules over us, and, and his rule is based on truth. His rule is based on love. His rule is based on grace. His rule is based on mercy, joy, and peace. Christ our King is benevolent. He is compassionate. He is patient. He doesn't only protect us, or he protects us spiritually, I would say. He is the guardian of our souls. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he will bring to fruition the good work that he began in us. And not only does he protect us spiritually, but he protects us physically. He does. And you may not think that, but he does. He protects us physically in that so much so that not one of his people will be removed from this earth before their appointed time. And when they are removed, they are brought what? Into his glorious presence. Because to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. He does protect us physically. And we walk around with all this anxiety and worry about our lives and about this and that. Do you not understand that as our sovereign king, he has appointed an amount of time for us and that you will not be removed from this earth until that appointed time. So if stuff's happening, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're done for. And if you are done for, how wonderful. Christ our king also provides for us bountifully, I might add, he opens his storehouses to us. He says to us, I will give you the very best of the land, Genesis 45, 18. One of my favorite things about our king, about Christ our king, about King Jesus, is the access we have to him. How does he, how does he, how does he you know, Christ our king work for us today? He actually gives us access. Hebrews 4, 16 says that we can approach the throne of grace, that we can come to his throne. The throne of grace is Christ's throne. Now, you just, just try to get an audience with Obama. I think for the ancient Israelites, it was probably tough for them to get an audience with a king. Kings are busy. Kings are royalty. I mean, you'd have to go through I don't know how many channels if you ever were to go before him. Now, on occasion, some people got access and argued a case before him, like in the terms of Solomon, but most often, I mean, think about it. We're talking about a king. You're not going to get access to the Queen of England. Not only does Christ our King grant us and give us access, it also says that we can approach the throne of grace, what? Boldly. Christ our King has granted us access to His throne and He encourages us to approach Him boldly, especially in our time of need. Man, He's the greatest King closing I would just say rejoice in the fact that Christ fulfilled prophecy and these offices during his incarnation thus proving that he is our savior thus proving that he is our king 
And I would say this equally, rejoice in the fact that Christ continues to hold these offices and work for us today. What is the work of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king? He works for us now, ministering to us, caring for us, protecting us, loving us. His work is ongoing. It's not just a finished thing. A lot of it is. Church, what sort of assistance are you in need of at this moment? Do you need answers? Do you need direction? Do you need wisdom? Petition Christ our prophet. He will open his word to you and give you direction and wisdom and encouragement. Do you need mercy? Do you need prayer? Do you need advocacy? Do you need help? Petition Christ our priest. Do you need protection? Do you need provision? Petition Christ our King. Christ invites us to utilize His offices and to take advantage of His work. And I would say this to you, and when you go to Him, don't be shy. Don't approach the throne of grace sheepishly with your hands behind your back, kicking your foot going, well, I've got this thing going on and I've got this issue. Don't, don't, don't do that. Approach the throne of grace. He invites us to approach the throne of grace boldly and to make our requests known to Him. Whether it be provision, protection, prayer, whatever. Utilize His offices. Take advantage of His work. He encourages us to do that. And I would say, keep coming. Don't come to the throne of grace once. Don't come to the throne of grace twice. Don't do three times and strike out. Be like that persistent widow in Luke 18 who bugged a judge until he finally granted her request. Jesus told that parable to encourage his disciples, to encourage us to always pray and to never, ever give up. Amen. Amen.